following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Today, uh, we're going to jump back into 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Last week was uh, part one of this. And so, uh, this week, we're going we're gonna to continue on with part two. There was just far too much content uh, to pack this all into one sermon. So last week, uh, we addressed some of uh, Paul's uh, prescriptions of our mindset as we endure suffering. So I'm, I'm going to invite you to, uh, to read that whole passage with me again, starting with verse 12, chapter 4, 1 Peter. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad that these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian. For then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or crying to others and not into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by His name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to God and the sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to the God that created you, for He will never fail you. Last week, as we read uh, Peter's words, he, he made it very clear that we are in this process of being refined. It's a, it's a smelting process. It is a, 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 a violent process. That uh, chemicals and heat are, are introduced to various different elements in order to, to be able to scrape off or pour off the various different impurities in, in an ore of some sort. And we're going through that process in life. This smelting process is meant uh, to, to bring, make our souls beautiful, essentially. This smelting process is designed to, to pull off the impurities of our life. And Peter makes it clear that we are supposed to rejoice or be full of cheer. To the extent that we are partners with Christ's suffering. Another translation for that is fellowship, in fellowship with Christ's suffering. From this passage, we get that God wills our suffering, believe it or not. God desires for our souls to be made righteous, and He wills the suffering in our lives. To assume that somehow God does not will the suffering in our lives assumes that Satan operates outside the bounds of His sovereignty which we know cannot happen. So therefore, the suffering in our lives must be suffering that is intended for a purpose. Peter also said that we should be blessed, or supremely blessed, when we lose face or when we are insulted for being a Christian. This deep, uh, this, this deep, deep insulting that goes down to our very core. When, when that happens, because we are Christians, we are supposed to consider ourselves supremely blessed because we are quantified in the category of Jesus Christ. We are called by his name, it says later. Piper puts it this way, God will stop at nothing to get out of you what he hates in you. So suffer for the right reasons. If we're going to go through this trial, if we're going to be smelted, we must be smelted, we must suffer for the right reasons. God 
pours out his judgment on the world. And it says here that he starts with his family. And so the judgment of this world in our family, in the family of Christ, is designed to, to make us righteous. Whereas the suffering for those that do not believe are God's wrath poured out on people so that they might someday come to know his justice and his righteousness. Suffer. Wow. Suffer. For the right reasons. Thank you, Ron, for emphasizing that word. I appreciate that. It says, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or crying to other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. To ensure that we are suffering for the right reason, we must live a righteous and upright life. Don't suffer because of your sinful immorality, is what Peter is saying. Suffer for the right reasons. Suffer because it's God's plan for your life as he is making you righteous. Now one of the things that I didn't address last week that I probably should have addressed is uh, Peter is specifically writing this letter to a persecuted church. So how do we quantify the suffering that happens not because of persecution? Suffering that is outside of the realms of persecution, simply just a, a, a lack of resources, uh, maybe loss of your job, difficulties within relationships, uh, whether you're just feeling ill that day. What, what is that suffering, what, what purpose does that suffering have? Well, as I've studied this, I, I believe that, that God is sovereign and that he governs all suffering. Anything that comes into our life, pain, pressure, loss, or, or otherwise that is endured while obedience to God's call on our life is intended to refine our life. While Peter was addressing specific suffering because of persecution, I don't believe that the message here is limited to just the suffering and persecution. Peter makes it clear in other parts of his letter that this is the lifestyle that we are Christians are to live, regardless of the source of suffering. So if you're like me, you probably can't raise your hand and say, I have suffered dearly in my life. Some of you have. Some of you have been in those positions. Some of you know people that have suffered for persecution. But some of you are in a place where, where that, hasn't, that hasn't been the cause. I want you to know that this still applies. This is not limited to just the right to suffering that comes from persecution. But it is suffering, period. Because God is sovereign and governs all suffering. But it does say here, don't murder, steal, or do evil, don't meddle. Well, I'm assuming most people in here probably haven't murdered anybody most recently. So let's, let's bring this down to something a little bit more applicable in our day. Peter specifically says, uh, don't be an evil doer. Do not meddle. This would be a category of what I would consider to be uh, socially acceptable sins. What about our need to be praised, our addiction to entertainment or food, our need for comfort, our need for provision? Those things that we, that we are addicted to or we feel a strong desire, we, we lust after because we feel that God is not filling us. Do not be an evil do it as a wide category of somebody that is simply not acting by the call of their Lord and Savior. Don't murder, don't steal, don't do evil, don't meddle, don't be addicted, don't allow Satan to have a foothold 
in your life. For there is no shame for being a Christian, for being called by his name. Be sure that there is no confusion about why you suffer. Suffering, because it is a, a natural or supernatural consequence for a sin that you're involved in, might have a purpose. But suffering that is a natural uh, implementation of God's will in your life as he, he grows you and develops you into the righteous person that he desires you to be, that kind of suffering, that's where you learn more about God's grace. That's where you find the creator that loves you, that wants to bring you along in this journey. Be sure that there is no confusion for why you suffer. In 1 Peter chapter 1, as we read months ago, it says, Dear, dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage against your various, wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, even if they accuse you of doing wrong. They will see your honorable behavior, and they will give you honor to God. They will give honor to God when He judges the world. Peter has a common theme through this entire book. The way we live our life is the most important evangelistic tool that we have. When we are to suffer, us suffering for things that the world would say we don't deserve, and doing it well is a ministry. Peter is saying here, when you suffer, make sure that it's clear that you are not just suffering for, the, for your own sin, but that you are suffering because God loves you. Because when that unbeliever comes and he says, why do you believe in this God? Why do you love this God? He's causing you to suffer. You are an upright person. You are a good individual. Why do you do that? You have an answer. You know with confidence that you are not suffering for your sin. You know with confidence that you can say you are suffering because God loves you and he desires for you to be righteous. That is the answer that we are to give. 1 Peter 7 says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than your gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. If you start mixing up the suffering of sin with the suffering of God's refinement, it gets harder to sort out exactly what's happening. And your testimony to those that don't believe gets a little bit more clear. If you are actively sinning, if you are publicly sinning, and you are suffering for that sin, that is what the world would expect. And they would expect you to be miserable. And they would expect there to be consequences for those things you do wrong. But if you sin... When you are, or sorry, if you suffer while you are righteous, if you suffer for things that society would say you don't deserve, there is your testimony. At that point in time, you can open up their eyes by sharing with them how much God loves you, that He will stop at nothing to get out of you what He hates in you. I'm going to keep repeating because I think it just sums it up. If we suffer, that suffering is because it is, if we suffer in that suffering, is because of the natural or supernatural consequence of sin. The testimony from that is that God is just and He does love us. And He is willing to punish us and bring us into righteousness with Him. But if we suffer for righteousness, then the testimony is that God is gracious and He is loving and He will stop it. Nothing, nothing to remove from us what He is. By living, a right, by living a righteous life, we are actively entrusting our souls to 
our faithful Creator. Peter says here to entrust your souls to your faithful Creator. Now, the time has come at this moment. For the time has come for judgment, and it must be done at the beginning of God's gospel. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? Sitting down, verse 19. So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and entrust your lives to the God who created you. For he will never fail you. Sin comes from our desire to be our own God, to control our own life, to be our own solution for happiness. By living a righteous life, you are actively entrusting your life to your Creator. By living a sinful life, you are actively taking control of your life from God. By acting in a righteous way, by living a moral life, you are saying that God will fill me. That the things, the temptations of this world, I don't need them. And in that, you are making a statement that I am entrusting my life to a sovereign God that loves me. And that trust, that statement, that testimony is once again an opportunity for you to bring God's word, bring God's will into the life of another person. By giving up our needs, our addictions, we are trusting that He will fill us and that the world will not. This is how we can trust our souls. And when we do suffer, Know that it's clear in this passage that God will not stand idly by. It says that He will not fail you. He will sustain you. That if you choose the righteous life, if you choose to live this life of righteousness that will come with suffering, God will sustain you. I know in my mind, as soon as I start going through these things, I start thinking, well, what would I do if I gave that up? Gosh, I, I really I want to give up, man. I don't want to give up food. I don't want to give up entertainment. I don't want to give up TV. I don't want to give up the things that I that I consume for entertainment. Because then what would I do with my time? God will sustain him. He will never fail. And it says that God is always faithful in the hour of trial. Corey Tenboom has a, a neat little anecdote here. Um, she was worried as a, as a young girl if given the opportunity to stand against the Germans, if she would actually be able to stand up against them. If called for her Christian faith, would she be able to stand firm against the Germans at that time? Well, her father said, as he was making his point, when you are going to take a journey on a train, do I give you your ticket three weeks early or just as you get on the train? She answered, as I get on the train. So God will give you the special strength you need to be strong in the face of death just when you need it. Not before. Why doesn't God give us these answers long before? Why doesn't He just tell me now, Nate, if you give up these things, I will go ahead and fill you with these other things? Well, this is kind of a trick question because the first thing is, He does tell us that. He does say that He will fill us, and He does give us that plan. We choose to ignore it because it doesn't sound as much fun. But the reason that I think God doesn't always give these answers in advance is because the closer the time of trial comes, the moment, the hour comes, the more faith that is required in order to endure that trial. 
If you were to know far in advance that a trial was coming, that you were to be called for your faith, that you would have a year to plan your answer, how would you spend that year? Would you spend that year glorifying God? Would you spend that year in, in fear of going through all the different answers you could give? If somebody told you now that in one year you were going to be, your life was going to be threatened for your faith, and you have one year to plan, how would you live that? Would you spend that year being faithful, or would you spend that year spitting the perfect answer? The perfect thing that might express your faith, but at the same time not get you killed. Or would you spend that year worrying about what would happen to your family, your friends, your kids? Would you spend that year basking in God's glory? Well, I think most of us probably wouldn't. And I think that it is in God's goodness and righteousness that He doesn't give us that information ahead of time. We are put on the spot. We are asked in that moment. Because in that moment, we are asked to be faithful. And I do pray that I would be able to have the righteous answer in that moment. I wonder if my life was threatened, maybe the life of one of my children. Maybe if you don't if you don't throw out your faith, if you don't step away from your God, then we're going to kill you. It's one thing to say what I would do for my own life. But at the same time, would I do that for my children's life? And if I did spare my son, if I did lie, if I did give up my faith in that context, what type of a testimony would that be to my son as he grows up? I believe that God gives us things in the hour of trial. Because that is how he maximizes our faith in him. Because he loves us. Jesus did the same thing. In the hour of his trial, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When it came down to the very moment of death, Jesus knew what his answer was. Paul, at 2 Corinthians, puts it this way. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure it. We thought we would never live it through. That verse is explaining some of the difficulties with the, the Corinthians, right? The Corinthian church, while it was growing, was also suffering a lot of judgment because of their sin. The Corinthian church was not necessarily a healthy church, but it was a growing church. And God was, was his gospel was being, uh, was growing in that church. But it was a church that was suffering because they did not give up on some of the sins of their culture. Peter goes, or Paul goes on to say, in fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. God's purpose in suffering is to cause us to rely no longer on ourselves, but utterly on Him. That's the purpose of suffering. By living a righteous life, we are actively entrusting our souls to a faithful Creator. And by actively entrusting our souls to a faithful Creator, we show the world that God is sufficient. Sufficient. Is God sufficient for you? Or is it God and in your life? I know for me, in a lot of cases, it's God and. God is sufficient as long as I have this or that. As long as I have enough money. As long as I have a place to live. As long as my family is 
showing God's sufficiency by entrusting our souls living a righteous life ultimately glorifies God. We cannot worship a God that is not sufficient. It doesn't make sense. We do God a disservice when we speak that He is sufficient here today. And then complain about this world this afternoon. If He is sufficient, He is perfectly sufficient. Because God is perfect in His character. Anything short of perfectly sufficient would make God a liar and undermine the very foundation of our faith. Either God is sufficient, or He is not God. To say that He is sufficient here today, sure, hopefully you would all join me in saying, yes, God is sufficient. We see that in Scripture. I agree with that now. But then what does my afternoon look like? What do I get annoyed about? What do I wish I had? What do I get frustrated about? What do I blow up my wife about? What do I get frustrated with my kids about? See, that's the, the, the sin of unbelief right there, is because here we proclaim it, and later our, our, the sin in our lives does not manifest that we believe it. So I would challenge us as a church to live a life that proclaims God's sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 12, as Paul was again addressing the struggling church. He says, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all in My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast that my weaknesses, about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is God sufficient for us? Is He sufficient for this church? Is He sufficient for your ministry and your family? So we ask the question once again how can we entrust our souls to a faithful Creator? Well, Peter has made this clear that we are to be prepared for the fiery trial. That we are to be full of cheers, cheer, that we are in partnership, in fellowship with God's suffering, Jesus' suffering. We acknowledge that God wills our suffering. That acknowledgement gives him that authority. By saying, well, God is just a passive bystander, and that, that just happens to me, we're somehow separating God from his sovereignty. God is sovereign. And he wills my suffering because he knows that that is what I need. Peter also says that we should be supremely blessed when we lose faith for being a Christian. And that we should live a righteous life, ensuring that our suffering is not because of sin, but because of God. That is how we dedicate, we give our lives, our souls to a faithful creator that loves us. That is how we give it to him. By following Peter's prescription for a moral life, we are actively entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. By actively entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, we show the world that God is sufficient. By showing that God is sufficient, we ultimately give God glory. That is the Christian life. Right there. That's it, summed up. That is the calling he has for every one of us, myself included. 
He will never fail you. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, that's not what I signed up for. I'm here to just be a good person. I'm here to just be moral. I'm here because God just told me I should be a better person. Then you've signed up for a life of moral obligation. There's no hope in that. There's not hope in moral obligation. If you're here doing ministry just to help people and not to share the gospel with them, you're doing the same thing. You're presenting them a life of moral obligation. You're not presenting them a life of hope. The full picture is the only item on the menu. The only item. This isn't all a cart. You don't get to choose. You walk into the restaurant, there's one item on the menu. You either eat there or you don't. And the chef in the back knows you personally, deeply, and he's making something perfect for you. At this restaurant, you either eat or you don't. There is no in-between, there is no standards. There's no changing out. That is the Christian life. If you are sitting here and you're thinking, yes, that is what I want. A life of purpose and meaning, a life of suffering. That is what I want. Then we have something in common here to talk about. And what also makes us in common is you're probably thinking, but I fall. I fail. And that also gives us something in common. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity um, has a great picture of what the, what the life in Christ really looks like. He says, a lie body is not one that never gets hurt but one that can, to some extent, repair itself. In the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble, because the Christ life is inside him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repeat, to some degree, the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. That's the life we've signed up for, a life of constant rejuvenation, and in constant sickness, constant suffering. Because God is not okay with you just living a mediocre life. He is not okay with you just being happy. He wants you to be supremely blessed and full of joy. And He wants you to be the righteous creation that He intends for you to be. So, how do we strengthen our bodies, our lives, our souls to be CS Lewis's? How do we strengthen ourselves as men to be able to endure, to repair faster? Well, one thing, we need to devour His Word. We need to consume the words of God. We need to open that Scripture and we need to make that part of who we are. And the only way to do that is to open it up and to read it. We also need to give our mistrust to God through prayer. Because we all struggle with that, that sin of unbelief. It's constantly back there at the back of my head, pulling and tugging at me. And daily we need to go to God in prayer in that relationship and give Him that mistrust, that unbelief, and say, God, I am not capable, but you are capable. Please take this from me. Make that part of your relationship in prayer. And third, we must put ourselves in accountability. We will fail. You will fail. I will fail. Peter is not writing to a perfect church.
church. Peter is writing to a church that struggles and is suffering. And one of the reasons he's writing to the church is to exhort them to keep each other accountable for what they have agreed to. Peter is writing this letter to the church because the church is the, the mechanism that God gave us to keep each other accountable in the life of Christ. If you are not part of that, then you're missing something. Now many of you might be here, have been here many times, some of you may be here coming for the first time. What I can tell you is that your life will never be as full as it could be until you are fully plugged into the life of church. I promise you that's the case. I've been doing this for nine years now. If you ask Tim, he's been doing this for 15 years, plus another 12, 15 years in another church. It is guaranteed that you are missing something unless you are fully plugged in to the life of church. Because that church has been given to us as the accountability in our lives. And apart from that, we will fail and there's nothing to catch us. There's nothing to keep us accountable. There's nothing to direct us back towards that path. The church is meant for that. The church is a place where the Holy Spirit can come and work through others as well as yourself to guide you along the path that God has called you So what does that mean? Get involved. Do something. Anything. Give your gifts somehow. One Sunday a month. One Sunday a year. Greet people. Show up. Have a happy face. Join a worship team. Help everyone back there on the soundboard. These are the things we can do to put ourselves into that community. Join a small group. Please be in a small group. And a small group that is part of the life of the church. Be it a small group that challenges you, that keeps you accountable, that keeps your life purposeful. The effort that you put in is an act of trust. It is an act of entrusting your life to a sovereign Father that loves you. And by entrusting your life, by putting yourselves in accountability, by devouring his word, and by going to him in prayer, you are telling him, you are communicating that you must have him in your life. And you are giving him your spirit. And he will not fail us. This is what it means to partner in Christ's suffering. This is the death of that suffering. Are you willing to go to the depths of that? One last passage from 2 Peter this time, chapter 1. And it says, Because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. Those are the promises that enable you to share this divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, <coughs> and patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter writing later in his life, the very end of his life. One last letter out saying, guys, you've got to get this. God has promised you amazing things. 
amazing, amazing promises. And you need to pursue those promises. You need to fortify your life. Because God wants you to be righteous. And because He wants you to be righteous, He will will your suffering. And if you were not prepared for that suffering, then it would be far more painful than it has to be. God does not desire our suffering. He wills our suffering. I don't desire for my son to suffer, but I do will his suffering when it will benefit him. We do this with our kids. God does this with us. I encourage you as a church today to consider who you are in this church or the church that you normally go to. Are you plugged in? Are you part of the life of church? Are you plugged into accountability? Do you have somebody asking you if you've been in the Word lately? Do you have somebody asking you if you're committing your own belief to Christ in prayer regularly? Working through that constant coming. That is what it means to be in the church and part of Christ's bride. That is what it means. There's no other option. If what you're hoping is a little less suffering, you signed up for the wrong thing. Peter and Paul make it clear what they're hoping for is a little more suffering. Just a little, just a little bit more. Because I know that if I do this and I endure it well, then I'm going to be able to write it in a letter and I'm going to be able to give my testimony and that's going to change people's lives because they're going to see that I'm suffering for righteousness, not for my sin. Do you desire to be strong in your suffering? To be able to evangelize in your suffering? Does that desire happen for you? Because I think that's an important manifestation of when we really got to the point where we encourage that suffering, knowing that it's what is best for us. Let's pray. Jeffrey Father, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. Lord, that we would actively commit our lives to you. That we would give it to you to be something that you can work with. Lord, I pray that we would be okay, not just be okay with, Lord, but to engage with the suffering you put in our lives. Lord, that it would have meaning and purpose because we are living righteous lives. Lord, this is an impossible standard that none of us have achieved or probably can achieve in this lifetime. But Lord, I do pray that you will continue to work in us. That we would not commit to grow in righteousness. Lord, that you would give us the discipline that we need to give up those things that are keeping us from giving our lives to you. Lord, we ultimately pray that this would glorify you and bring your gospel to the people of this country and others that do not know. Lord, that that would be our ministry. So Lord, as we worship you and we take communion later, Lord, we pray that you would be the center of this. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.